Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 397 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here this week and every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the Mapmaker Chronicle series, the Adaban Cipher series, and her latest book is The Firestart, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? I'm okay, Valerie. I'm okay. <laughs> School good. holidays are over oh, and yeah. life continues as normal. That's good. What was the hmm. highlight of the school holidays then? Oh, well, you know, just being with my cherubs every single day. <laughs> Isn't that what I'm supposed to say? Isn't that how it goes? Um, no, look, it's actually been pretty good. Uh, Book Boy got his peas during the holidays, so that's been oh. uh, that's been entertaining for yes. all of us. He's very excited, and um, we're all very excited for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, it's it's hilarious because suddenly, you know, he's perfectly happy to go and run errands for me um, oh yes oh yes you know you need a something from that shop 50 <laughs> meters up the road I'd be happy to drive and get that for you um yeah so no it's uh no it's been quite good and yeah it's, we've just been getting on with stuff I mean that's what you do isn't it book boy is driving I remember when book, book boy, boy is was driving non-existent I know you remember that. <laughs> Non-existent. People remember me before children. And remember, do you remember how full of sunshine and light I was in those days? What fun I was, all of that kind of stuff. I know. I know now he's driving. Like he's practically a fully-fledged adult, which I just find amazing. I don't know yes. how this happened. And it seems to have happened. You know, they do say about kids that the, the days are long but the years are short. Um, and it's really quite true because it it's – I don't know where all that time's gone. Not yeah. Really. It's, uh, and it's, it, you know, I, I always say, um, you know, when you see a kid you haven't seen for a while mm. and you kind of have that, you take that step back and go, gosh, haven't you grown? Yes. Like it's all that, you know, it's haven't you got big and all that. But it's really your brain coming to terms with the fact it's more like me going, Oh, haven't I got old? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like you're, you're suddenly an adult. Wait a minute. You know, like what happened there? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a thing because I think, you know, when we see each other every day and we're hanging out with adults, you don't really notice. Like the, there's that sort of slide into into everyone getting older. Yeah. But it's not till you see that physical growth of someone else's children that you realise how much time has actually gone past, mm. maybe since you last saw them. Uh, yeah, anyway, that's just this is how my brain works when I when I see children. I know. <laughs> um, all right, so what else have you been doing apart from <laughs> thinking about ageing? <laughs> <laughs> contemplating my decline into old age. Uh, what else have I been doing? Well, I was, um, as everyone will remember from last week, I was braced to receive the copy edit on Maven and Reeve 2, The Wolf's Howl, uh, but it got held up, you know, and so I'm still braced for that. It's actually going to be arriving, I think, uh, today, I think I'm getting it. Uh, So I'll be working on that for the next couple of weeks, which is good. The boys will have gone back to school, so at least I will have five minutes to think about, you know, what I need to do, which is good. Um, And, oh, I I did a workshop. Uh, Oh, yes, how did that go? taught a workshop for the South Coast Writers Centre. It was um, it was good. Actually, it was great to be back 
in a in an actual you know room with a group of kids I, it was about writing fantasy stories um, and I hadn't done it for a while and when you haven't done a workshop for a while you kind of got to remind yourself what it is that you wanted to talk about um <laughs> But it went really well and I had a I had a lovely day with them all. Um, they're so enthusiastic and they have such great ideas. You know, it's just they're like so good. I know. I say to them, I need you to you know, on the spot, I need you to create a world, uh, you know, based on what we've just been talking about. You've got five minutes, off you go. And yes. you know, five minutes later they've written half a page, they've come up with some incredible concept and some amazing thing and I just think where does that all go like you know it's Mm. uh, because these kids were all about maybe 10 or 11 um and I think sometimes as we get older we just get so busy with everything else that we lose that ability to just dive straight into something like that so but yeah no they were great it was a really good day Oh, cool. Um, All right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. So we have a great blog post which is on the um, Australian Writers' Centre blog and it's called What is Regency Romance and How Can I Write It? I remember when I was growing up, my mother used to read Georgette Heyer and therefore – Yes, therefore I was devouring it. I did not know as a child that this was called Regency Romance. I learnt that much later in life. But obviously with the um, recent success of Bridgerton on Netflix, uh, Mm -hmm. which I haven't actually watched. Have you watched that one? No, because, no, I haven't watched it. I read the first book um, a little while ago Mm -hmm. and, and I was quite keen for it. Uh, to, mm. to to watch it on Netflix and stuff like that, um, and then like you said, whole series. Yes, yes. And I, I don't. I'm trying to figure out why I haven't watched it. Have you I'm started not exactly it? Sh- not. I haven't even started it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually it's the kind of thing that's usually right up my alley. Mm. Um, but there's yeah, I I haven't watched it, and I don't know quite why. The first book, it, it was an interesting one. Um, mm. The relationship dynamic in that particular book is was slightly unusual for, you know, that sort of romance, Regency romance area. And I'm not sure I loved it. Maybe that's why I haven't watched it. I'm not sure. I haven't, but I haven't watched it. And um, yeah. No, I've got nothing to say about that any further. <laughs> All right. For those of you who aren't familiar with Regency romance, it is set during Britain's Regency period when the Prince Regent ruled the country in place of his father, the mad King George. And so the Regency period itself, or the Regency, only lasted nine years, but the era that's kind of recognised as that period is usually is around 1795 to 1837. So it's a very, very specific period, and there's a very specific look and very specific activities that people used to do during that time you know so a lot of these stories are often full of parties and balls and gossip and um nice dresses and yeah hats and things (laughs) carriages and wafting about in Hyde Park and yes Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, and, of course, Georgette Heyer was the, the, the queen of Regency romance. Um, and there are, it's, it's so interesting because within the genre of romance as a whole, 
there are so many subgenres, and this yes. is just one of them. But and Regency it, itself has many subgenres yes. even within it. Yeah, it's yes. a it's a very specific. Um, it's a very specific area. I, I've to, it's, it's quite funny, you know, because I saw this article come up on the Writer's Centre and I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. Um, so when I did my HSC back in the day, I don't know if we talked about this, <laughs> when I did my HSC back in the day, um, I was also working in a corner shop and my uh, boss there used to read romance novels like they were going out of fashion. Like she yeah. would have like bad garbage bags of them. Wow. And she, because it was actually quite unexciting, you might find this really hard to believe, but sitting in a corner shop for six hours at a time <laughs> was quite, you know, unexciting. Once she'd cleaned all the shelves once and rotated the fridge and done the things <laughs> she needed to do, there was an awful lot because I used to do the Friday night, uh, mm. you know, set. And so it was basically just people coming in for their tally-ho papers and their cans of Coke. <laughs> and it was kind of boring, you know. So I used to sit there on the step behind the counter with a romance novel and I would pretty much be able to read, like I'd, I'd read at least one whole book while I was sitting there. Wow. And then I got into this thing of where she would give me the garbage bag and I would take it home and I would read all of the romance novels and then I would bring them back the following week and she would give me another bag basically. Like this was how it worked. Wow. My mother always said, that if only I had been able to actually major in romance novels for my yeah. HSC, I would have been top of the state. Yeah. So what I've found in the last year mm-hmm. is that Book Boy is doing his HSC. Yes. And I am doing exactly the same thing. What? I am reading I am reading Regency romance novels on my iPad because the library. Um, I don't know if you've discovered Borrow Box as part of the library, you know, network, but you can borrow them through the library mm-hmm. on your on your iPad through the Borrow Box app, and I have just been consuming them. So obviously, this is my escape from stress. Oh. I've started doing it last year with COVID, yes. and it's like I am I'm, I'm fully looking for escapism, and this is where I am. I am in Regency Romance Land. I must have read, I reckon, I've probably read two or three hundred of them since. COVID lockdown. No. I reckon I could sit down and write you a Regency romance based on, like one of the tips in this blog post, what is Regency romance and how can I write it, Mm. is to read lots of Regency romance. Well, I have that section covered. I'm ready to go. I can talk to you about balls. I know (laughs) how it works at the various, you know, um, you know, Almax and all of the various things, and which is what you're kind of doing, isn't it? You're researching how Mm. other people approach writing that period while I'm doing it for you. Wow. Yes, it's very important if you are writing romance and or, you know, even specifically Regency romance that you understand the tropes that that are involved in the different subgenres of romance because readers Mm. have certain expectations and if you don't fulfil those expectations, they get really cranky. (laughs) They do. But you also need to understand too, I think it's really important to understand that you can't just – research an historic period through and this is something that was I remember writing a going to an historical fiction uh writing workshop back in the day many Mm -hmm. years ago Mm -hmm. and they said that one of the mistakes that people make is that they uh they will read 300 Regency romances Mm -hmm. but they will not actually 
research the Regency period to make sure that mm. those details are correct yes. because you need to understand it for yourself, not just other people's understanding of it. Yes. And historians often complain bitterly about the fact that, you know, Regency romance gets it all wrong for various reasons. Um, but you, yeah, so it's important to have that sort of an understanding of the facts and the history of the of the time for yourself, not yep. just through what you read in other people's romance novels based in that period, mm. I think. Very good advice. So if you want to check out that blog post, it's on the Australian Writers' Centre blog and also we'll put the link in the show notes. I'm currently not reading Regency Romance, but my my to-be-read pile has, well, it's it's really high, but <laughs> three of the books that I will probably be reading over the next, I don't know, 10 days or so, are um, Lovebirds by Amanda Hampson, who, of course, is one of our teachers at the um, Australian Writers' Centre. She teaches creative writing. I am reading The Uncorrected Proof. I'm so excited about this. The Uncorrected Proof of Susanna Hardy's book. Um, Ooh, yes, that's exciting. Very, very exciting because Susanna is one of our um, alumna and her book, Loving Lizzie March, is going to be out, oh, I don't know, I think maybe – in a couple of months or something, um, maybe June. And also I have the uncorrected proof of um, Matt Nabel's book, Still. Oh, and you do love a bit of Matt Nabel, don't you? Yes. Do you remember we interviewed him a, a million years ago? Yes. Mm. Possibly episode 39 or so, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was at least a million years ago because we are not far off 400, Valerie Koo. Four hundred episodes. I know. How did this happen? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know either. Um, but yeah, I don't. The, our four hundredth episode is going to be all about you guys, the listeners. Mm. So if you are not already a member of the um, listener community on Facebook, make sure you join. Just search for "So You Want to Be a Writer" podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there, and we will be posting some details on how this episode. Uh, how the 400th episode is going to be all about you. Um, speaking of the Facebook community, I uh, the podcast community, I would just like to say a big shout-out to everyone who joined us in celebrating, what do we call it, something ridiculous, Writing Companion Appreciation Wednesday. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I feel like I could probably come up with something a little bit better for that. Um, but I just would like to thank you all for sharing the excellent photos of your various writing <laughs> companions and their main skills. Um, I particularly liked Annie's bulldog in the dress. That was quite fabulous. Yes. Um, her main skill is providing a steady white noise of snoring all day to aid her writing. And then we had Caddy, who loves uh, a good walk whenever they need a break. We had uh, Bowie or Bowie, I'm assuming it's Bowie, mm -hmm. this gorgeous Border Collie sheepdog that's scared of sheep, which just made me laugh so much. <laughs> uh, we had Juno. We had Mr. Darcy, who's quite Aww. fabulous and is clearly a, a dog in need of a snack. Um, uh, we had cats. We had dogs. We had birds. We had a chicken. There was this fantastic little image Crazy. there of a random chicken um, who pops in as well. That's Sarah McKenzie's uh, random writing chicken. So, um, just thanks very much for sharing all, all of your uh, writing companions with us. It's always lovely to see to see them all at work, hard at work. Yes, 
All right, let's move on to our competition this week. Obviously, we're living in a time where travel around the world isn't so so, so much a happening thing. So um, we have three copies of the book World Travel by Anthony Bourdain, and you could win one of these three copies. It's a celebration of the life and legacy of one of the most important food writers of all time, the inimitable Anthony Bourdain. He saw more of the world than nearly anyone. His travels took him from his hometown of New York to a tribal longhouse in Borneo, from cosmopolitan Buenos Aires, Paris and Shanghai, to the stunning desert solitude of Oman's empty quarter and many places beyond. In World Travel, a life of experience is collected into an entertaining, practical, fun and frank travel guide that gives readers an introduction to some of his favourite places, in his own words. Featuring essential advice on how to get there, what to eat, where to stay, and in some cases what to avoid, you might be living vicariously through this for a little bit until such time you can travel yourself. Entries close for this competition on the 26th of April. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win for your chance to win one of three copies. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now, out. Are you ready for the word of the week? I am always ready, Valerie. Always. Great. So it's ossitant. That's O-S-C-I-T-A-N-T. Ossitant. Mm. 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 Do you know what it is? Not really sure what I'd need to say about that. Uh, no, <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, it's an adjective meaning yawning or drowsy and inattentive. And actually saying it might make you want to yawn. Are you yawning? Are you yawning? Well, I'm just wondering if this is my reaction to word of the week every single week. So to use it in a sentence, you would not say Alison is ossetant (laughs) when she learns about the word of the week. You might say the ossetant teenagers were blessedly quiet at the end of the field trip. (laughs) <laughs> not sure where I'm sorry going with sorry that I'm, I'm 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 Austin over here sorry <laughs> oh my god okay and that was the word of the week <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre a world leader in writing courses if you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens our five-week online course How to Write for Children and Young Adults will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. All right, so let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Who have we got, Al? Oh, I had the opportunity to speak to the lovely and charming Julieta Henderson about her lovely and charming book, um, Norman Foreman. I just want to say Norman Foreman. Uh, <laughs> it's the funny thing about Norman Foreman, I think, is the entire title. But it's uh, it's a great book. It's so It's so sad and so lovely and so funny all at the same time, and I think that readers will love it. 
Julietta Henderson has been writing professionally for more than 25 years, with her work appearing in books and publications in the US, UK and Australia. Her debut novel, The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman, is out now in Australia and coming soon in the US, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Israel. Welcome to the program, Julietta. Oh, thank you very much, Alison. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Sounds just like me. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Norman is your first published novel, but you've been writing professionally for a long time. So tell us about the kinds of writing you've been doing over the years and how you got your start with that. So, yes, you're quite correct. I've been writing for a long, long time. Uh, I've been writing since I was a child, really. But professionally, um, I started, yeah, it'd be over 25 years now. And the first professional job I had actually was working for a photographer who's quite well known now and um, has moved to America and made his fame and fortune. But I met him by chance, actually, and he asked me to come and work for him. And then uh, within, and I worked for him in in his gallery selling his photographic art because I was a very, very keen photographer, amateur photographer. So that's how we came to meet. And then I, his, his business expanded into a publishing company, his own publishing company, and I moved into the creative department, which was the creative department was me, um, the photographer and a graphic designer. And so I did all the uh, the copy for his, um, just for his images around the gallery, the little blurb and mm-hmm. things like that. Then I expanded to doing, you know, bios and things like that. And then moved into, someone else had done his books a, for a, a while before that. But then I moved into doing all the copywriting for his books. And that was sort of, I, I worked there for a good many years, maybe 10 years, and had got a couple of large format books under my belt, which was very exciting for me. And then after that finished, I moved back to the UK, where I've been back and forwards for well, the last 25 years or so. And I started working in a uh, marketing company. So I did all their copywriting and then over the years, and I actually still work for them all these years later, I obviously just contract because I'm back here in Australia, but I still do writing for websites. And, and as any freelance writer knows, if you, have to, if you want to call yourself a writer, you have to pretty much do anything and everything. And so just over the last few years, I don't know, 10 years, I guess, I've done everything from and currently still do real estate copywriting I do um, the occasional um, article in magazine or newspaper or, you know, um, in-flight magazine and things like that. But I'm a little bit too lazy with that these days because you actually have to pitch and put a bit of work in to get that sort of work, <laughs> um, as you would know. Mm. So, um, but but mainly I'm doing things like writing for people's websites and, and writing that sort of, which I very, I think I coined the term myself in my head and then I, I possibly shouldn't use it, but a lot of it is, the writing that you would do, like what what we're calling content now, so mm. you know that goes out there into the ether, and you know those of us who write a lot of it know that in many cases it's never going to be read, but um, it's for it's for it's for um, you know SEO purposes and things mm. like that. So I haven't done any of that for a while, but I did a lot of that, and um, I actually think that that was the perfect 
training ground for um, for more creative writing because you have to, you know, it has to be it has to be, you know, very good writing because Google can recognise, you know, rubbish and all that sort of stuff. But it is very disposable, if if I can use that term. You have to sort of get used to the thought that you spend your day writing this stuff that possibly people won't read. But it does teach you to be a very good self editor mm. and not to be not to be precious about your your words because there's always more words. Mm. Isn't that the truth? Um, mm. So is uh, the funny thing about Norman Foreman the first novel you've ever tried writing? Uh, no, it's about the 101st, but okay. no, um, no, not really. It's it's definitely the first one that's ever been published. It's probably, I would say I have, I have three that are in various states of completion, but will probably now never be completed. Um, one I was working on for a very long time and it, and it is, you, you can't see me, but I'm doing the inverted commas thing. It is finished, but obviously it's not really. Um, but this, but the funny thing about Norman Foreman is the first one that I went all the way, all the way to the end and then persisted and then didn't get, you know, sort of sidetracked by some other kind of shiny idea somewhere else, which is what I'm very uh, prone to doing. <laughs> okay. So when did you, let, let's sort of have a look at, at when you first, when did you first start writing fiction? Like how many years do you think you've been working off and on at various bits and pieces of it? Oh, probably for probably for fifteen years, I would say. Uh, no, probably for ten years. Seriously, when I started telling people, and it's literally that long ago that I started telling people, I'm going to write a book, or I am writing a book. I mean, I didn't say it very much to people because I'm very aware of, you know, like you, every, anyone can say that, but if you sit, if, unless you actually sit down and do it, it's just another one of those things, and people will stop listening to you after a while. But I did start saying that at least 10 years ago and I was actually doing it um, sort of very quite seriously or, or what I considered seriously, which now, having <laughs> finished my first and working on my second, I know I had no idea what serious really was. But, um, yeah, so for a long time and I, you know, I think I've, in my head, I sort of had to look at it as I, I can look at that in two ways I can say oh my gosh what a waste of time I should have you know I should have had a book published 10 years ago what why was I wasting my time why did it take me so long or I can look at it the way I'm choosing to which is that that was that was really my training ground mm. I mean I didn't ever have any I didn't have any doubt without sounding you know big-headed or anything I didn't have because I wrote for a living I didn't really have any doubt that I could write, mm. but writing a book is very different, as you well know. Writing a book, writing a long, you know, 90,000, 100,000 words is very different to writing a 1,000 words or even 5,000 words. And so I think those 10, 12, whatever years it was that I was fluffing around, telling people I was writing a book and, you know, living in Paris and <laughs> pretending to be a star. Well, I wasn't pretending to be a starving writer. I was a starving <laughs> writer. But, you know, that was, I think that was my training ground. And, and in order to make peace with myself at that time that, that I, you know, could be perceived as being wasted because nothing came out of it, um, I'm choosing to look at that as my very long apprenticeship. 
Well, you know, an apprentice, they, it, is, it does take a long time to work out how you write a novel. It's something that we talk about a lot. And that tra that transition from writing for other people to writing, you know, something that is entirely yours is something that I have also talked about. And it's, it's, it is, as you say, a very, very different process. Um, but so let's talk yeah. about this book, The Funny Thing About Norman mm. Foreman. What was it about this one? that made you persist all the way to the end? Like why, what is it about this book do you think that's different to the ones that you've done before? I think genuinely, I think I absolutely fell in love with the characters. Um, and I, it was easier for me, it was, it was easier for me to keep going than it was for me to stop and put it in my hard drive and, you know, watch Netflix for another weekend because I really wanted these characters. I don't know. They arrived, you know, the old thing, oh, they arrived fully formed in my head. They actually did. And they, this little boy and his mother showed up in my head and they just wouldn't go away. And so I started, I was writing something else at the time and I started out with them and I just couldn't stop it because I wanted, I wanted to see what happened myself. And, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to give them up. I wanted to spend time with them all the time. And I became quite obsessed as you have to, I think when you're writing a book, um, you know, whether it's obsession or, or persistence, I don't know, it's probably the same thing, but I just, I really wanted to, without sounding corny or cliched or anything, I wanted to honour them and I, I wanted to bring them to life and I wanted their, I just wanted to tell their story and so I just kept on going until their story was told. So it began with the characters, like where did the idea for it come from? Because maybe tell us a little bit about it because, you know, we're sitting here talking, I've read this, so I'm talking <laughs> to you about it like, you know, everyone knows what we're talking about. So maybe tell us about the funny thing about Norman Foreman and then okay. just give me an idea of where the idea came from as far as um, and where you, be you obviously began writing with the characters. So maybe just give us an idea okay. about how that happened. Okay, so the story is about not surprisingly, a boy called Norman Foreman. Um, he's a 12-year-old boy. So the story basically is about him and his mother, single mother, Sadie. Um, so Norman and his best friend, who's called Jax, are obsessed with uh, the old-time comedy greats, the, the British comedy greats. And they've got an ambitious plan to get themselves or their own comedy duo act um, all the way to the famous Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that's, that's their five-year plan. But then... Tragically, Jack dies, and that's not a spoiler because he, you know, that from basically from the first page or second page. Um, and Norman's left absolutely devastated, of course, and now he's just half of a comedy duo. And his mother, who uh, she's a woman who's she's so flawed and she's very self deprecating and she's a single mother and everything, and she never thinks she's doing the right thing. All she wants is to um, see Norman smile again. She can see how much he's suffering. And so she resolves not only to make his dream come true and get him to the Edinburgh Fringe, but also to help find the father that he's never known. So there's a lot of challenges that I threw in front of these two characters. But in answer to your question, where the story itself came from, definitely it came from those two characters popping into my head. As I said, I always had this, it was just... It, I, I really wanted, um, I don't have children myself and I don't pine for them or anything like that, but I always wanted to 
I love the I love the special relationship between um, single parents, whether it's a father or a child. I've I've got many friends who are single parents for whatever reason, um, and I think it's a really special relationship. Um, and I think in a single parent family, you have to be each other's heroes, sort of thing, you know, because mm. because you're all you, especially single parent and only child. So I did want to explore that to a certain, but that only sort of came later. That that whole idea of exploring um, the single mother thing that that came a little bit later. But these characters, they just they just sort of played in my head, and the story really came about. Definitely, the characters came first, and I didn't quite know what I was doing with them. But I sat down and wrote, and then I. I started to think about, um, you know, when authors, are, you know, if you if you're stuck writing, if you've got writer's block or whatever, you always ask yourself a what if question, and yeah. oh, what if we close that door, or what if we, you know, run him over by a car or whatever. I this what if question. I was watching some comedy thing at some stage or other. Honestly, don't remember. I, I don't remember the moment, but I remember the vagueness of, around it. Um, I was watching a comedian that wasn't very good, and it just got me thinking about what if what if comedy was your life? What if you were so obsessed with comedy and you really, really wanted to be a comedian, but you were really rubbish at it? Mm. And that that kind of it all it all sort of started from that. And then also, I did want to challenge. You know, that's the fun of writing, isn't it? It's like you know putting challenges in front of your characters and seeing how they react to them. Another question that I did ask myself right at the beginning was, what if the worst possible thing that ever happened in your life led you to the best time of your life? And that was, I think, when everything really fell into place because that's kind of what, you know, happens in the story. So how would you describe your writing process then? Is sort of like a couple of random ideas start writing or are you from that point planning things out or what happens? Oh my gosh, you know, the the whole plotter and pantser thing. I never even had heard of that before I started trying to <laughs> try to finish this book. I was like, oh, research, how do you write a book? But um, never, never did I plan. In this mm. first book, never did I have a plan. It was completely scattergun. And I actually wrote, um, I wrote the end, the be- really interestingly, the very beginning, the first page and the last page, I wrote um, fairly close together, so I guess that's in a way, it's a plan. I I knew how I knew how it was starting, and I kind of knew how it was finishing. But those two pages have never changed. Like they're they're practically word for word from mm. like five years ago when I first started it. In the middle, I mean, I think with this book, um, I was fortunate in the planning in that it's. It's a road trip, which you know again is no spoiler. It's, mm. it's a road trip, so so your plot is fairly linear. Obviously, there's you know thinking back and there's there's you know introspection and things like that from all the characters. But it's basically a linear plot, isn't it? A road trip. I mean, it can't be anything else. You've got to get from point A to point B to point C to your final point. So in a way, the planning. I didn't really need to plan all that much. So I, I knew where I was leaving from and I knew I had to arrive there and everything else that happened in between literally 
came out of my head as it went onto the page. There was no forward thinking at all, which is which is very different, by the way, to the one that I'm working on now. I'm trying to be a planner in this one. I'm looking at my huge white ball on the ward board on the wall now, thinking, yeah, that's a plan, but it's not really working that well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with Norman, the voice of the book is very specific and is actually one of the great joys of reading it. Like it's a very engaging book right from the start. Did that did that voice come to you straight away or was that something that's emerged as the characters developed? Well, both the voices of Sadie and Norman came to me very naturally. Um, a lot of my friends, I got a text this morning actually from a friend who said, I'm reading, and she said, I can't help hearing your voice all the way through when okay. Sadie speaks. Yeah. And I said, oh, interesting, interesting. Um, and a couple of friends have said that. Um, so they were both, but they both came very easily to me, very naturally, I should say. But I was, um, it was harder for me to write Norman because I was getting, I was really, I didn't want him to, he, he's a very unusual 12-year-old. Um, so I, he didn't need to sound, you know, childish or anything like that, but I also didn't want him to sound like an adult. And because I don't have children, um, I was really, I was really conscious of getting that right. And mm. I didn't sort of ask questions or anything like that because I was fairly determined. I didn't, I didn't want to be swayed by, you know, the, it, it's whenever you ask people advice, you're going to get conflicting advice. And so I didn't want to get, um, you know, even more more confused so I sort of went with my gut on that and just because I'm not a parent doesn't mean I haven't come across a million you know 12 year old boys in my time so I, I guess he's an amalgamation of every kid I've ever met um, <laughs> and you know so so but but I found maybe worryingly I found that he did his actual voice came really naturally to me and I was like oh maybe I'm a 12 year old boy in another life because I kind of found myself understanding how he might think as, as a 12-year-old boy and where that came from, I don't know. Maybe just remembering, you know, it's been quite a while since I was 12, but, you, can, you, know, you know, we've all been there. So I guess maybe I was drawing on that, but it was, a, it was an absolute pleasure. But I have to say, yeah, like when I got to Sadie's parts, I, was, I almost breathed a sigh of relief because I was like, oh, I don't have to worry about getting things right here I because I, I am. am a woman, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really was like that. And so every time I then got back to Norman, I was like, right, got to make this right, you know. And, and I'm so, that's why I am so, I'm almost do like a, a happy jig on the phone or wherever when people say, wow, you got the voice of Norman really, really love, really, really down pat sort of thing. I think, oh my God, thank goodness. <laughs> Well, yeah, for me, I think one of the things that underpins both of those voices is that sort of feel-good factor that sort of goes through yeah. the, I mean, even though things don't really, you know, begin on a high note, there is still somehow an underpinning of, of feel-good. And I'm just wondering if that's something that you deliberately set out to achieve or if it's just evolved as the story has also evolved? Um, I think I did. I didn't. Um, I didn't deliberately set out to write Uplit, which because I'd never heard the term until until I had, after I'd had my publishing deal, actually. But it is very much Uplit, which is uplifting literature, obviously. Mm. Um, I didn't. I, I don't, didn't consciously set out to. I didn't consciously set out to do anything, to be honest. Except I think I knew in my head that I always wanted it to be hopeful, and and by that I didn't mean I don't have to have a happy ending in a book 
but I think I need to have some kind of a sign that 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 the characters have evolved in a good yeah. way, and there's and that even if it's not down on the paper, that in the future maybe they're going to get some happiness. So even though, and I knew, again from the from when I sat down to start writing, I didn't know I was going to be dealing with like, you know, the complex topics like grief and single parenting and, and things like that. I mean, that, that was never my intention. But then once I was there, I wanted to, I thought, right, okay, well, this is what's happening. But I really wanted to deal with them sensitively, but I also wanted to deal with them hopefully. Mm. So, you know, and, and, and sort of, I guess at the heart of it, the book, is about resilience, you know, resilience for, for, for Norman and for Sadie. They've both been through different things and for actually every other single character in the book. And again, it was not intentional, but I think I saw that coming as I was writing and I was like, yeah, you know, I really like this feeling. And as it turns out, you know, it, I, I think I've written the book. You know, writers often say, write the book that you want to read. I think, again, not consciously, but I think I did that because – I read really widely and I like some very obscure books, but I do love books that have that touch of humour that can make you laugh, make you laugh, make you cry, make you think and just walk away from with, you know, you're not necessarily going to remember a book for the rest of your life, but just to remember it weeks later and go, oh, that was really cool or wasn't that shocking or wasn't that, you know, just some kind of thing that you can leave with people. And I hope that there are bits in that that people might think of a couple of weeks at least, maybe not years, but a couple of weeks later. <laughs> um, now, we touched on this a little bit earlier and we talked about the challenges of switching to long-form fiction and, you know, the mm. apprenticeship and stuff. Um, what did you find most challenging about it? What was the most difficult aspect of it for you? Uh, just doing it instead of thinking about it. I am just the world's there needs to be gold medals given out for procrastination because I would have a neck full of them. It's so easy to get um, this. It's so easy to stand up and walk away from your computer when things are getting hard, when there's no end point mm. or, you know, when a hundred, when a hundred thousand words is your end point when, because when if 500 or a thousand or 5,000 words is your end point, you're like, okay, I'll just plod on and I'll keep going and yeah, it's been getting a bit messy, but I'll, okay, I'll tidy that up later. Whereas I found it really, it, I'm a lot better at it now, obviously, <laughs> but yeah. it was really hard not to, it's almost like goal setting. It's almost like not having, you know, you've got a very arbitrary goal of finishing a book, but you haven't got, Oh, and as, and particularly in the first one, when I was writing to no deadline, I was just writing into the future, you know, hoping one day I'd finish. So me personally, I tend to fluff around and I'll jump around from bit to bit and if it gets too hard. I mean, I had the perfect example yesterday. I was just having the worst writing. I had the whole day free. I had nothing else on. I had the whole day free to write. I And I couldn't even get through sort of this first, this not first chapter, but this chapter that was just being difficult to me. And I had to, I had to do it because I thought I've got to get this person from A to B, you know, it was literally getting them from a garden shed into a house sort of thing. And I, it was so difficult for me, but I just forced myself. Whereas normally I would go for a walk, I'd go and do something else. I'd clean the house. I'd find some kind of excuse that really is an excuse. It's not 
It's not trying to gain, you know, inspiration or anything. It's just an excuse because things are too hard. I forced myself to sit here on the lounge and I sat here for 11 to, for about four hours and I got there and, and I made myself get there and I was so proud at the end of it because that's, <laughs> I, I honestly think that's the first time I've ever done that. Right. Of course, you have to go, you have to go back and, and do the hard bits, but I always do that and I always put notes in and go, oh, go back here in red and go, yeah, this needs finishing, but can't be bothered doing it now. And I forced myself to do it. I was so proud. I was so proud. I mean, it's, I haven't reread it this morning. I'm sure it's going to be extreme nonsense, but at least I got there and I've got something to work from. So, Yes, in answer to your very original question a long time ago, um, that's the hardest thing is actually sitting there, sitting your bum down on the chair or keeping it there, I should say. Yeah. Just keep, I, might, I might invest in some magnetic pants. I just you need the bum glue. That's idea. what you need, the bum yeah, glue. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> bum glue. Truly I do because there's so much wonderful stuff going on in my house, you know, not. But there's, you know, there's, there's so many things that can be done apart from writing. So that's been an education. So once you'd completed the manuscript with um, Norman Foreman, what happened from there? Like, how did it actually come to be published? Do you have an agent? Did you just send it out? What happened? No. So I have an agent. I have the most incredible agent. I have my dream agent. So the, the way I got to her years ago, probably um, six, six years ago, um, a literary agency called Curtis Brown. They're a very large yeah. literary agency in the UK. So I was invited by them to do a week in, um, what do they call it? A, a summer school or something like that, a week um, in the offices of, of Curtis Brown and just to come in and, and do this week intensive, um, uh, yeah, like just an intensive workshop on, on your novel. And I just thought, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm so stuck with this novel that I'm working on. I don't know that I can, I can sustain and a week of talking about it. I'm actually losing interest with it. And all this. So I'd had Norman in my head for not that long, but I started to write just a couple of notes about this book. And that was what I took to this week long workshop. And that was what I worked on. And it had a you know really good reception from there. And I met at the end of the workshop, I met um, this agent because they they gave us a little you know champagne party with, and we were to meet agents and pitch to them um, just as a as a practice sort of session, which I completely messed up because it was a table full of agents and it was so intimidating. Anyway, I did that, and then at the at the champagne thing afterwards, I knew this particular agent called Sue Armstrong. I'd already researched her, uh, maybe a year or so before that. And I knew she was the, the agent that I would have in, in my dream of dreams because she's, you know, she's a bit of a, she's very well known and she's, you know, she's done some amazing books and things. And so at that party, I said, oh, you know, would you mind if I pitch, if I sent Norman to you when I finished? And she goes, oh yeah, it sounds adorable. <laughs> I walked away going, oh, she thinks it sounds adorable. Anyway, fast forward, gosh, I don't even know, another three or four years after that. And I did send Norman to her. And so then I sat back. I, I had no plan B um, because she was the agent I wanted. And I thought, well, I'll wait for the refusal from her and then I'll start researching other agents. And within a couple of days, she got back to me and she said, I love it. And the funny, well, I think it's a funny story. Anyway, I, I planned everything. So I, I did everything right. You know, I, my letter was, was, you know, perfect. So I thought everything was perfect, my synopsis. 
And I knew that you never send um, anything to an agent in March because it's the London Book Fair and that's their busiest time of the year and everything. So I got mine off at the, at the beginning of February and sat back and waited, you know, thought I was going to have to wait three months for an answer. And she answered me in a couple of days and she said, look, I'm really busy because we're just gearing up for the London Book Fair next week. I was like, no, I couldn't have sent it at a worse time oh. um, because they, they'd moved the, the Book Fair forward and I didn't know that. So I was, you know, I was just thinking, oh, God. But anyway, so then she, and she said, I love it. I just want to let you know I love it, but I'm really trying to read it, but we're really busy. And she said, I'll get back to you. And then within a couple of days, she rang me back and, or she rang me and she offered me representation. And seriously, I nearly fell through the floor because, that is my dream come true. And so then I worked with, so, so of course I accepted her offer of representation. And then I worked with her for about maybe two months um, editorially because she's quite well known for, not, not all agents do work editorially with you, but she did. And so she suggested a few structural changes and things like that, which I worked on with her. And then she took it to publishers. And again, it was, it was really quick Um so within just a couple of days, there was a few publishers interested and then it went to auction, which is an amazing thing to have happen. And yeah, and eventually and here got, we are. Well, here we are, got preempted by Transworld and um, yeah, the, the rest is history, as we so, say. Well, and that feels like yeah, a dream so, run after 10 years of working on various oh, things. And isn't that the thing? Like everybody sees yeah. that, the... The sort of you know the preemptive thing in in Publishers Weekly or whatever yeah. and thinks wow dream run yeah. but in actual fact yeah. five manuscripts later <laughs> yeah absolutely and also it I definitely definitely had a dream run and it's really sometimes you know I have to be quite sensitive about saying that I know because there's so many fantastic writers out there who don't get a dream run or don't get their opportunity but I do take credit for my own dream run in part by saying that I made it so easy for everyone at every step to say yes to me in terms of, you know, what I could control, which was absolutely everything. I made it perfect uh -huh, before I sent it to her. Um, my letter, I probably took me a month to write my letter to her. My synopsis probably took me a year. No. Um, but even down to the point size of and the double spacing of the letter and who, you know, I, I made everything just perfect, exactly what you want. So easy for you to read it and easy for you to say yes, hopefully. So that would be, yeah. That, yeah, that, make it, make it as easy as possible. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Why do you want people, why would you want people to say no to you for, you know, for putting it in the wrong font size? You know what I mean? No, that's it's, right. It's, yeah, give yourself so, the best yeah. chance. Um, yeah. So you're working on another book at the moment. Obviously, you have a deadline for this one. Yeah. Would I be right? Yeah. And, and does yeah, that, has would. that changed everything for you? Oh, yes, it certainly has. Um, it, but for the better, like I do actually work better with a deadline because, as I said before, if I'm working towards a fluffy point at the end of time, I'll just take till the end of time to get yeah. there. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, so so I'm, you know, I have moments of, oh, you know exactly what it was like, but yeah, I have moments of absolute panic and, you know, two o'clock in the morning thinking I'm never going to get this done and whatever. But now I still may not get it done. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and realizing that no one else is doing it for me. So I have to do it. And also that how lucky am I to have a deadline, you know, in publishing. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's an absolute privilege. All right. So yeah. 
that brings us to our final question, Julieta. So there's yeah. a couple of things Ooh. we need to discuss. First of all, where yeah. do people find you online just so they can, you know, oh. track you down if they want to? So they can find me at my my website, which is just julietahenderson.com. Um, and I mainly put all my bookie stuff. I started trying off to be to be very prolific on Twitter and Instagram, but it's very time consuming, as you know. So I am on Twitter as um, Julieta Julieta Julia, and but I'm not on there very much. But I'm on Instagram a lot at Julieta Henderson author. Great. That's probably the main place. Yeah, we usually talk about that too. Like I think once you start out with social media and stuff, you discover what you like. You find the thing that you're actually actively going to do and we always say do do one thing that you're going to do rather than trying to spread yourself across stuff that – doesn't. Oh, right. Well, that, yeah. I'm glad to hear that advice. Thank you. I'll continue. <laughs> I'll feel better now. I'll feel better for ignoring Twitter. <laughs> no, just, you know, play to your strengths. That's, that's, we always say yeah. that, play to your strengths. All right. I so know. we're going to wrap up with our final question that we ask everybody. What are your yeah. top three tips for writers, Julieta Henderson? Okay. Look, they're probably tried and true tips that you've all heard before, but I would say the very, very first one is just to read and read as widely as you can and even read out of the genre that you would normally read. I've learned a lot about reading from reading um, friends' manuscripts and things of genres that I would never read, like dystopian fiction or even thrillers. I'm not a big thriller reader, but you can just learn different structural techniques. You don't, and you'll probably find you enjoy it as well, but you can learn so much from reading that and you know it's just it's the basis of all writing you can't write unless you read so I read probably two books a week and just absolutely love it um that's first one um the second tip would be again tried and true but absolutely I'm living it now which is just get the the, the first draft is telling yourself the story it's not it's never going to be seen by anyone else it's never it doesn't matter if it's rubbish but you need to get the first draft draft (laughs) draft down in order to have something to work for or towards so just get just get the words down um don't try and be perfect in your first draft just get them down get from beginning to end and then go back and start doing the the editing and but i think my favorite writing tip, which again is not original, but really, really changed things for me, or it, it sort of justified what I probably already did, but it made me think, oh, maybe I'm doing the right thing, which is to write for your characters. Um, don't write for don't write for your perceived audience. Don't write to get published. Don't write for your agent. Don't write for your mother or your friends. Write if you find yourself some characters that you absolutely love and you want to spend a hundred thousand words with, if you in your head, if you write for them to get their story out there, um, I think that's, that's mm. you're halfway to success. That's yeah. great advice. Well, thank, thank you so you. much for your time today. All the best for Norman Foreman uh, coming out in um, all the various territories because. Um, it's out in Australia right now, but it's yes. coming soon to it's lots com- of other places in April, I believe. Yes, yes. mid-April in the US and then end of April in the UK and around Europe. Fabulous. All right. Well, best yeah. of luck with it and best of luck with the new work and we look forward to seeing many more Julia he- Julietta Henderson novels in the future. <laughs> Julie Hedda. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called a lot of things. That's fine. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you for having me and thanks for having me particularly on this very excellent podcast, which I love. Thank you.
There we go. Awesome. Julianne Henderson, great interview. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the chat. I've, I felt like the way she came to writing and to the to the character and all of that sort of stuff was really interesting. I loved the idea of it, this notion of this of these two boys who wanted to go to Edinburgh and was this the whole stand up comedy aspect of it mm. and the comedy duo aspect of it. It was a it was a really lovely book. I really enjoyed reading it. Mm-mm-mm. Wonderful. All right. So we are now at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Well, you know, now that I've confessed to the world that I'm consuming <laughs> Regency romance, I'll probably be doing a bit of that. I will be doing some writing, and I will be doing, and I will be doing my copy edit. Um, what Are about you still you? doing that? Yeah, remember I just said that it got held up, and I was—I've only yes, just got yes. it, so it's a bit later than I was expecting. Do you not listen to me? Were oh, you feeling ossetant while I was talking? I think that I might have been trying to look at our spreadsheet on what was coming next. I'm sorry. I should be more present and mindful in my life. There's no active <laughs> listening going on out here, people. I just Sorry. want you to take note. I, all right? I got sprung. You got totally sprung. That's okay. <laughs> I'll forgive you. What are you doing this week? I'll be reading those books. Oh, that's um, right. I wasn't listening either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, on maybe that note, I feel like we should end. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>